Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What is my life? Oh, what is my life? That's a song by George Harrison, for those of you who don't know, but popular science writer, journalist, and Yale University professor of molecular biophysics and biochemistry, Carl Zimmer, is joining me to finally answer the late Beatles question. What is life? It's a funny thing. The podcast has been going for a while now, and I'm fortunate enough to get to talk to these intellectual titans from Professor Paul Bloom and Professor John McWhorter to Professor Lyra Boroditsky and Professor Dame Sue Black, among many, many others. And it's such a weird thing because I'm about as far as it gets from an academic And here I am talking to Professor Carl Zimmer, a man whose scientific knowledge is spectacular and who contributes essays to the New York Times and National Geographic. Frankly, there's a huge imbalance in intellect in this interview. And I like it that way. Did you know that Professor Carl Zimmer, who has 300,000 Twitter followers, so follow him on Carl Zimmer, at Carl Zimmer that is, is the only science writer to have a species of tapeworm named after him, and that'd be the Ancanthobothrium zimmeri. And so what if I practice that a hundred times before saying it? I got it right in one. The professor has a new book out called Life's Edge, which you can get in all the normal places, as well as the link in the show notes. It's a fantastic success that looks at where something can be considered alive, and where it's like, oh, no, that's not quite alive, but it sort of is because it has some of the basic functions of life. Is it alive or not? So it's really fascinating. He's written many other books too, which you'll find on carlzimmer.com. But today, we'll focus on what it means to be alive. We'll touch on organoid... Oh, sorry, I'll stop doing that. We'll touch on organoid brains that scientists are growing in vats. There's an early chapter of the book all about them, and it's just so interesting because these tiny brains are entirely man-made, but the neurons and things inside them are working almost as though they're thinking, and they're not quite thinking, but are they alive? Um, And as some of you know, I mean, I I read these books for the podcast. I read them at like two or three in the morning before falling asleep, so they really provoke some quite, uh, quite crazy dreams. And what about a girl who was sadly diagnosed as brain dead, she was brain dead, but whose body continued to go through puberty, change and age over the years. 
So he's going to be telling us about that story. And is a fetus alive just after conception? I know that one's a controversial issue. And I think Professor Carl Zimmer handles it extremely well and balanced. Um, We'll talk about all of that, as well as the conservative social commentator Ben Shapiro. What alien beings might look like, not like Ben Shapiro, that's a separate bit. And the people who have a condition that leads them to believe they're dead even though they're talking about their condition that they're dead. Professor Zimmer gives a fascinating interview, and I'm delighted he came on the podcast. We didn't have time for a bonus interview this week. Sorry to my patrons about that. I can't always guarantee it, but I am hoping quite soon to be able to up to two episodes. Is to up a verb? To up, to increase to to two episodes a week. But the fact is, those 10 questions require a tiny bit of homework and extra time from the guest. So when I've got these big guests coming on who are requested to interview everywhere, it's not really fair of me uh, to expect all of them to do that work, you know. Coming up in the next few weeks, by the way, are the episodes with David Robson, John Ronson. We've we've recorded those two already. Jordan Harbinger and many, many more. So stick around. Tell your friends to start listening, review, and so on. Oh, you know what? I was talking about the John Ronson one uh, and David Baddiel, who's coming up, with my dad when I went back to visit him in the northern outskirts of London last week. And a lovely lady <laughs> overheard me saying it, and she said, she said, excuse me, what are you, talk- you talking about? And I thought, oh, God, what horrible thing did I say in the last minute? Because I say a lot of horrible things, and I thought she was going to have a go at me. And then she said, you're talking about David Baddiel and John Ronson and Alanis Morissette, because I was talking about her as well. Those are my favorite things. Where can I listen to all this? And I told her about the podcast. It's the first time I've ever been able to market it or PR it uh, in real life. And she got in touch as well. I don't know if she'd want her name shouted out. So I'm just, I'm not going to do that just in case, but it's been lovely talking with her. She knows who she is. Um, But for now, for now, it's Professor Carl Zimmer. How are you doing? You good? What's what's going on in your life? I keep thinking that I'm almost done as a science writer writing about the pandemic, and then it just pulls pulls me back in. You know, kind of Godfather three. Um, <laughs> Every time I think I'm out, that's my impression of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, about a year ago, I thought, well, we, um, the, you know, the vaccines are effective. We know that now, and so now, you know, now it's just a matter of politics and business, and and you know. People can people can report on, you know, vaccine hesitancy and all that stuff. And that's not really my thing. And that's fine. But, you know, la- yesterday I was writing about all the Omicron news. And today I've been writing about uh, Pfizer's antiviral pill. And I was just like, wow, it's just there's a lot of news. Do you find yourself debating with people a lot who are maybe anti-vax anti-vax seemed to be a very fringe thing just a couple of years ago and now i've got quite a few friends of mine and probably a few people quite a few people listening to this podcast who are very smart people who have suddenly gone anti-vax have you yeah are you getting into arguments with friends and family not really but i think i think maybe just because they kind of know like oh he he writes about vaccines all the time so they kind of know what they're going to get i suppose i mean I, I certainly feel that that the sort of uh, skepticism about vaccines was much stronger in the past than I think people appreciated. Um, and but, you know, there were just there were a lot of systems in place that just sort of made it kind of, you know, kind of a low key thing, kind of an automatic thing. 
you know, you had to get him to get to go to school and nobody really like brought that up much. Um, and then, you know, and then a lot of it was like you and your doctor, like, you, you know, your doctor would say like, you know, you're in your fifties, you should probably get this, this shingles vaccine. Um, but you know, like the first, I mean, here in the United States, you know, uh, as soon as they rolled out the, uh, human papillomavirus, you know, cervical cancer vaccine, um, they, they pushed it in a very sort of, uh, in an urgent way, but without a lot of good communication. And so suddenly people are like, wait, 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 why, why are you suddenly like saying that my daughter has to get this vaccine? Wait, you're saying that my daughter has to get this because she's going to be having sex. You know, she's 13. What do you, what do you, you know, you're calling my daughter a, a whore or, you know, like it, it just, it escalated really fast. And we, we've got terrible um, HPV vaccine uptake here, which is like, horrible like thousands of women will get cancer and potentially die who didn't need to like it's completely preventable cancer and so it's like so i so i i had a bad feeling but it, it's actually like i mean everything surpassed my expectations with covid so yeah i suppose i had a hint of it but not a big one but yeah i mean it must i mean at least you're talking with people about about it i mean i think you know, conversations are a good thing if, you know, people don't feel so alienated that they don't even want to talk about it. That's the thing. And I think it's really hard. I think with my friend, a very close friend of mine, he, uh, I, we try to have very civil discussions. I don't, we, we both accept that neither of us are experts and we don't know very much, but he has this feeling that he's better off just, just stay exercising and stuff like that. And I have a feeling that, well, yeah, but why not? also get the the vaccine just to, just to, to clarify before we move on to other stuff i mean mm -hmm. you you as a as a, a very established and esteemed uh professor would would suggest that we do indeed get get the vaccine right yeah absolutely absolutely i mean it's incredibly safe it is incredibly safe and and uh and 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 remarkably effective um you know and and you know the fact that we have a vaccine so quickly after a major new pathogen has emerged is is astonishing and and should be you know celebrated um and uh i mean uh yes i mean uh, uh people people need to get vaccinated and then and then they need to get boosted um, that's, that's where we are right now because we're dealing with Omicron and the numbers are clear. You, you know, you have, to, you have to be ready with the booster or you will get sooner or later, you're going to get Omicron and, you know, maybe you, you know, maybe you'll get it and just you know, won't feel great and then recuperate and that's fine. Good for you. But maybe you'll be on a ventilator or maybe you will give it to someone else who will be on a ventilator. So, uh, yeah, everyone needs to get vaccinated. Well, everyone, you, you heard that, so get your get your vaccines. Um, so I was just thinking before getting onto Life's Edge, right? Tell me a little bit about your favorite um, parasite. <laughs> yeah, um, so I, I uh, wrote a book about um, parasites called Parasite Rex, where you know basically I was saying that parasites have a bum rap. They're sort of thought as you know insignificant, inferior, degenerate critters. And I, I think that they are the big winners in, in the game of life. They're more species of parasites by far than any other kind of uh, form of life. Um, and they're sophisticated uh, and uh, highly evolved and, and really, in some cases, exquisitely cool. I, I guess the one that I'm 
really most taken with is uh, uh, a parasitic wasp, uh, a jewel wasp, which um, stings uh, cockroaches. Um, and the cockroaches are then like, they don't kill them with their sting. They actually sort of like essentially turn them into zombies. They're, they're not paralyzed. They just don't feel like moving on their own. And so the wasp can then basically like grab hold of one of their antennae and pull it like a dog on a leash into a burrow. And the cockroach just walks along like, okay. Um, I mean, if you ever tried to, you know, pull a cockroach by its antenna, you know, not easy, but this, you know, in this hypnotized state, um, from the drug that the uh, wasp puts into the cockroach's brain, it just works. And so then the cockroach just stands there in the burrow while the wasp lays an egg on its underside, the egg hatches and then the wasp larva digs its way inside of the cockroach, which is still, again, just standing there, just minding its own business. And then the, the larva feeds on the fluids inside of the cockroach and grows and grows and grows and grows into a full adult wasp which then chews its way out of Ugh. its cockroach host and wanders off to um, mate and and if it's female eventually find another cockroach to infect so man it's disgusting <laughs> it is disgusting but like like when you know there are scientists who have tried to follow the course of the stinger through the cockroach's body um and the sting that delivers this sort of zombifying effect you know it actually kind of threads its way it has a very long stinger and it, it actually threads its way almost like laparoscopically into the cockroach's brain and then to a particular cluster of neurons in the brain which seem to be you know in, involved in in you know what you could call voluntary movements and boom delivers a very precise potent uh injection of drugs to that particular place and then retracts the stinger and like so that's that's why the cockroach is is healthy it's fine except that it just can't work up the initiative to run away oh man that's living hell though isn't it and that's what i'm interested in here really and why it's related i think to life's edge as well because we're talking about i suppose life's edge more about life but this is consciousness and i'm just wondering like how firstly how does the wasp know i suppose it's millions and millions of years of evolution and stuff and then are they then just basically robots are they sort of no no more complex in a way than plants they're just sort of doing cycles and they don't even know is the cockroach going oh shit it's a wasp again and sort of fuck or what's it thinking in its head well um <laughs> you know <clears throat> i wouldn't say that i, I you know I, I wouldn't say that you know cockroaches are just robots because um you know, cockroaches have, you know, just have, you know, fairly complex brains and believe it or not, and um, they have, you know, a range of options, you know, in any situation. Um, they react very quickly. They don't give these things a lot of thought. I mean, like, to, you know, if you try catching a cockroach, it's gone in an instant. It, as you're, as you're trying to swat it, it feels, you know, the air that you're pushing ahead of, of your hand. Yeah it, you know, flutters on these hairs on its surface. And it says like, I, I have to get out of here now, you know, say that, but that's like, that's the response. Um, so, uh, so, you know, our cockroaches, deep reflective philosophers know, but they have lots of different ways of responding to their environment. Um, and, um, 
you know, but what's so what's amazing is, you know, is I mean, you know, one of the amazing things about evolution is that you have co-evolution so that like predators, you know, the predators that can anticipate movements of their prey um, are going to be more successful. They're going to get more food. You know, they're going to be the ones to, to, to have those baby predators. So, you know, if a, a wasp can, you know, sneak up on a cockroach, um, that is going to be, you know, a huge uh, benefit. Um, and so, you know, how how exactly this particular amazing parasite evolved is, is you know, that's a, there's a lot of big open questions of that because we don't have like, you know, the full history of these wasps going back, who knows, you know, maybe millions of years. Um, but, you know, their closest relatives um, do seem to be uh, wasps that um, actually, um, lay their lay their eggs uh near insect hosts and then the larvae actually kind of crawl and sneak up on on the insects and dig in there so you can kind of see how like uh you know there was might have been sort of a baseline there to you know improve upon as it were i guess i'm interested in the suffering aspect i mean if you pull the legs off of a butterfly or a spider or something or is is this cockroach i can't think of a more you know it's, it's un- unimaginable the the terror and pain that we'd get if someone put a thing in our heads like that. Are they are they suffering? And, and I'll get on to because you could tell me about these little globe brains that I've been reading about in your fantastic mm-hmm. book. You posit at one point that sort of, you know, the intriguing thing is whether these little brains that are growing in a vat can could ever suffer and what that would mean and mm-hmm. whether they're alive. So tell me a bit about that. Right. So uh so in this case, what I'm writing about in one chapter of Life's Edge is is things that kind of kind of like are kind of in this fuzzy zone uh, where it's hard to say, well, are, are these alive or not? Um, you know, that's where the title of the whole book comes from, Life's Edge. Um, so in this case, um, these are not sort of distinct organisms that have a clear kind of, you know, life cycle. What what we're talking about here is uh, you can, I could take, you know, a little bit of, of your skin and put it in a Petri dish and sort of break, break it up into individual cells. And um, then uh, I could then give it a certain uh, combination of chemicals, which, I, which could convert those cells essentially back into stem cells, a bit like what you would find in an embryo. In other words, they have now the capacity to develop into lots of different kinds of tissue, not just skin. Now they had, you know, you're unlocking the capacity in the, in the genome to turn these cells into something new. And what scientists have found is that with the right combination, they can actually turn these skin cells essentially into neurons not just any neurons, but the neurons in the early developing brain. And you just keep feeding them and they grow and divide and grow and divide into clumps of neurons that have a lot of structure, much like the brain, uh, like the cerebral cortex, where we do some of our most sophisticated thinking. Um, These neurons fire, they talk to each other uh, and uh, it, it, they, develop into lots of different types of neurons found in the brain that, you know, secrete neurotransmitters and so on. So, and these things can stick around, you know, you can keep them alive for, no one's really sure how long 
you can keep them alive because they keep on going. They're, you know, a few years old, at least now. This is pretty new research wow. just, to, you know, in the past few years. But, you know, they figured out the recipe for, for growing, you know, an, what's called a brain organoid per, up to like a million neurons that just keeps clicking away um, with what even what sometimes seem like brainwave patterns um, for a year or more. So are these things alive? Um, do we think of mm. them as independent uh, life forms? What are they? And there's an ethical side to this, which is that, you know, the, they are, I mean, it's, you know, these are like tiny, you know, smaller than a pea type thing. So like, you know, it's not like a full human brain, but um, where, where along the line in the, the development of the brain, do we do do you know would would a fetus for example experience something that we would consider a human level of awareness of pain of, of all of that like we don't know for regular fetuses honestly and it's, so it's even more of a mystery with these organoids um you know and so it's a real puzzle you know some scientists have said like well we will be fine unless these things start to learn you know, if these, if these things can learn, then it's a whole different ball game, you know, like maybe you could like, you know, it could, it could adjust its uh, brain, brain organoid wave patterns in response to external stimuli in a way that would suggest learning. Um, that hasn't happened yet, but no one's ruling it out. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that private. What's changed? the internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com slash heretics and get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn.com slash heretics to learn more. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take 
to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on what could go right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. We learned at school, high school, we learned this thing called Mrs. Gren, which is a mnemonic uh, for for life, what makes something alive, which I think, movement, respiration, sensitivity, growth, reproduction, excrement, that can't be right, uh, and (laughs) nutrition. Uh, Is that outdated now? Well, um, uh, those are all important things, but, you know, I I think... um, I think what's most striking to me is it's it's rather a bit of a laundry list, you know. It's not sort of, you know, exquisitely tight and sort of coherent, you know. And you know, what deserves to be on that list and what doesn't, you know? I mean, um if someone um let's say someone has, you know, is is born with a uh, you know, a mutation that leads to infertility. So they can't have children. So here is a person who cannot reproduce. Now, if you say that reproduction is, you know, a requirement of life, so is this person not alive? Well, you'd be like, no, no, of course not. Of course not. That person's still alive, you know? So suddenly like this, this list, this hallowed list of, of absolute requirements is suddenly, you know, adjustable um, just to serve your own kind of vague intuition about what it means to be alive. Um, so there's a, I find that disconnect fascinating. I mean, I, I, on the one hand, I, you know, there are these features of life, which, which are themselves astonishing and amazing. And I write about them in the book, kind of looking at each of those hallmarks of life. Um, but that, in, but the fact that we can sort of fall back on an intuition of life I think it's fascinating too. Like, why do we have an intuition of what is alive and what isn't? Where does that come from? Um, you know, I, I do think that that's actually an evolved response to our surroundings, um, you know, a sort of a biological sensor. Um, unfortunately, that kind of intuition doesn't, intuitions uh, do not automatically make us philosophers. So is a cell alive? Is an organ alive? Well, you tell me, what do you think? I mean, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> I, we, 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 we have this word, but, uh, and, and yet, you know, um, this word existed long before scientists, you know, studied it in a sort of, uh, in a modern method, um, you know, life living, all these words, we've used them for centuries, for thousands of years, or words like them, um, and now we're saying like, oh, well, this is a, this is science, right? So like, like, you know, surely we must know what life is. And therefore, you know, you can tell us, well, does this make the cut? Um, and, the, and the problem is that, um, you know, like something, something like an electron is something that um, was discovered sort of within, you know, the, the, the sort of modern scientific tradition. So, you know, there, you can be pretty precise in a definition of an electron. That doesn't mean you don't 
know all the deep meaning of what it means to be an electron, but still you can be pretty precise about it. You know, you can say like, well, a proton is a proton electron. No, no, it's not. You know, it's got a positive charge. Uh, of course, it's not an electron. But with life, um, you know, scientists these days, uh, there are a lot of scientists, well, for centuries now, have been trying to sort of like work backwards and impose a definition on this word that we already use, this concept that we already have. And so then there are literally hundreds of definitions of life, hundreds in, in print, in, in scientific publications, and they're different. And um, so you, I mean, so you, then you have these hard cases then of what, <clears throat> what things are alive or not, you know, organoids, I mentioned viruses are another, I mean, viruses have some of the hallmarks of life, you know, they evolve, uh, they, 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 they replicate, um, but uh, they don't have metabolism. They're not self-sustaining. And so, um, so they don't quite make the cut <laughs> for some people. Uh, other people say like, I mean, I, when I say people, I mean, virologists. I mean, I have virologists send me email and, and, <laughs> you know, one in, in the morning, I'll get one from, you know, from a virologist that says like, of course, viruses are not alive and any expert will tell you. And in the afternoon, someone will <laughs> say, well, of course, viruses are alive and any expert will tell you. So that's the state of play. Wow. It's, yeah, it's so, it's so difficult isn't it to pin down it's, it's, it's something that the average person who's not a virologist or whatever that we don't really think about we just think oh that's alive and that's dead and all that i didn't even think about there not being a, a theory of life uh yet or, or, or consensus on a theory of life could we um with these organized growing i mean what is the use in them and and could we eventually sort of stick our own brains in like vats like that and live beyond the body because my body's i've just tore my hamstring last night <laughs> and i just i started to get this feeling of like i'm getting i'm 33 about to turn 33 and i'm just falling apart i'm starting to just every, my hamstring that's the worst one because it's just like that's that's the muscles just sort of slowly going you're not needed anymore you're past the age where you need we're probably going to have kids or whatever uh or not nowadays of course but you, you know uh, what's the point in this lug i'm carrying around <laughs> well wait wait till you're 55 um <laughs> Uh, no, it's uh, so or I don't think organoids will um, be the solution to getting away from your pulled hamstrings. I don't think that organoids are going to be, you know, the uh, the the secret for immortality, at least an immortality that would be meaningful to us. Like, again, like, remember, I could take a bit of your skin and grow a brain organoid. Well, not me, but there are scientists who can do it. <laughs> and um, uh, and uh, so there's a, that brain organoid making its little brain waves in a dish. You know, it came from you. It's got your genome, but, um, you know, certainly isn't, you know, helping your, the conscious experience you're having right now, like it's not augmenting it you know, whatever it's experiencing, it's experiencing it on its own. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I don't think that that is an out for, for you. Um, and, uh, and, you know, no one's going to be able to take your brain out of your head and stick it in a, in a vat and sustain it for very long. One of the problems actually with these organoids right now is that, um, you know, the brain needs lots of oxygen. Neurons are really hungry, uh, cells, 
And so they need oxygen, they need sugar. And, and the problem is that like, these are just clumps of neurons. And, and so um, if they get too big, then the, then the cells on the inside really struggle because, you know, the, the medium that they're growing in can't penetrate into the core. And so those neurons start to get, go hungry and, and huh. start to suffocate as it, as it were, you know, they don't have enough oxygen. So, so, you know, scientists are trying to figure out how to, um, you know, sort of develop blood vessels that would go or vessel like things that would go into the core of these organoids, then maybe they could get bigger. Anyway, um, the value of these things, why do this? I mean, it's not just so that we can have, you know, these conversations about what it means to be alive. There's very practical reasons for it. Um, so, you know, to understand, um, you know, a lot of uh, developmental uh, conditions that involve the brain, you know, forms of autism, um, conditions like Rett syndrome and so on, like, you know, like the, the, you know, we know that genetic mutations are involved. We don't know how. Um, and so, you know, and, and the, and the, you know, the embryonic early developing human brain is just a black box. Like, just don't know what's going on. So scientists can actually like, you know, uh, are what they're doing is that they are getting skin samples from people with various conditions who are volunteering to be part of these, these uh, trials. And so our families are, you know, donating these samples. So, you know, things like Rett syndrome or, or other forms of autism, other kinds of conditions of the brain. And you can watch these, these cells with these mutations develop uh, and, and you can sort of see how sometimes how they steer away from, uh, you know, the standard development. And that gives you clues about those conditions. Um, maybe you, know, you may recall, uh, when, when the Zika virus was suddenly flaring up in Brazil a few years ago, it was one of the most horrific and somewhat mysterious, uh, aspects of it was that a lot of babies in Brazil were being born with severe brain deformities. Their mothers got sick while they were pregnant and that led to these deformities. Um, so you can actually like grow brain organoids and, and infect them with Zika virus. And you can see how that affects their development. You can see it in the dish. And then you can also um, test out different um, antivirals to see like, well, what can stop the, the Zika virus from causing this damage? So, um, so there's actually incredibly important practical aspects of that research. And I, I gather you, you're of the belief that, of course, you know, a clone of you is not you, you, because you, you wouldn't get you wouldn't get the same uh, conscious experience uh, professor paul bloom was on the other week talking about that as well and I, I can't remember which side he came down on but it was like a big debate if there was if it was you and yeah i, I guess, is that what you, you'd say it's not you is it because you are the one that's thinking as you uh yeah uh well <laughs> you know it, it's um you know who you are is not a is, is not as simple as it may seem um and you know if we you know we like to define ourselves ourselves. There's 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 like a popular sort of DNA-based definition of you know our identity. Like people, people, you know, some people who will will argue that quote unquote life begins at conception, a lot of times they they, they base that claim simply on there being a uh, a new and and unique uh, genome 
uh, in that fertilized cell. And well, um, that's wrong on a bunch of different levels. So, I mean, I can take, you know, I can take skin cells from you and put them and grow their brain organoid in a dish. And it's like, whatever experiences that organoid is having are completely separate from you. There's no connection um, between you. And, and um, you know, you could, I guess an analogy to that would be uh, like trees, like aspen trees. So there are a lot of trees that will actually reproduce in a very interesting way they can send down runners uh, that go underground. They're not really roots. They, they basically go th- or in the ground and then pop up at some distance away from the tree, original tree. And then a new tree starts growing and eventually the runner sort of disintegrates. And now you have two trees. That that new tree is a is a is an offshoot of that original tree. But you look at them and you're like, well, they're two trees, you know. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, uh, I, I think that there's a, a similar a similarity there. And 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 you know, it's it's hard. We don't have to think that way in our everyday life. So we kind of apply our everyday thinking to like the weirdness of biology, and we get into trouble. Mm. I remember I had this philosophy book. It was pink. That's all I remember about it. I must. It was like for kids or something when I was like twelve, and it had this bit in it about uh, some sort of transporter because they can transport you to Mars, so you could work for the day on the mines in Mars and then come back at the end of the day. And then people realized what was actually happening was it was sort of disintegrating you and making a new clone at the destination, and the same thing when you came back every day. And that I guess people disagreed about whether it's still you. And I just remember thinking, just being horrified and just thinking, no, of course not. I was killed the first time that they took me to the planet, right? Right, right. And yeah, so, I mean, I, again, like when we think, uh, when we think of the self, when we think of our identity, like we don't actually like really when you, when push comes to shove, we don't really think about it in terms of, you know, DNA or whatever. We think about it in terms of a continuity of conscious experience. And so, you know, if, uh, so yeah, so if you clone someone and if, if you could clone someone and that, that clone could grow up and have like, you know, complete, a complete conscious experience, like, well, you're not having that. So that's not you. Uh, and so I think that's why, you know, we um, have ended up you know, in terms of at least, you know, when we think of the end of life, um, you know, uh, there's been been a pretty strong focus on, you know, the 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 idea of brain death, um, not merely death in the sense of like metabolism breaking down, but um, you know, the but the the brain no longer being able to have any conscious experience and no hope of conscious experience, you know, the body can be kept metabolically physiologically going for a surprisingly long time after brain death but you know um certainly um the medical community has come to the agreement that that's not really the best way to define death the best way is to define death is is brain death because we think of life human life as conscious experience yeah, tell me then about, um, is it Jahi McMath, her case? I, I was fascinated by that and the legal uh, st- stipulations around it. 
Yeah. So this was a, a girl in California who um, just went in for what should have been fairly routine surgery. Um, but uh, in, in this incredibly sad case, she, she suffered you know, massive bleeding and you know, the surgery went terribly wrong. And um, she, uh, she ended up, uh, you know, in, in a, in a coma. And um, it, it eventually became clear that she had, you know, she, when you would do these kinds of tests to, to, to see like what her, what state she was in, um, she was not, um, she was not minimally conscious. She was not even what one called vegetative. I mean, she was brain dead. Um, and so the state of California, you know, declared her legally, legally dead because she met the, 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 the standards. Um, but her family, um, just was, was, was seeing their, their young daughter, uh, on, you know, on a ventilator, um, still, you know, still breathing, um, heart still beating and just said, no, no, we don't want to take her off this ventilator. And the hospital was like, well, but, she's been declared dead. And so they went to court and um, it turned out that uh, the state of New Jersey had on the other side of the United States has had some different regulations about the definition of death. And so, you know, there was an opportunity there for, for Jai McMath to get continued to be kept on a ventilator and to continue to have care um, even though she had been declared brain dead. So she was actually flown there and actually like survived for, for a few years, actually went through puberty. Um, now there were some claims that, you know, she could respond to, um, you know, to voices, but I, you know, I don't think there was any really like firm, clear evidence of that. Um, she, she suffered, you know, massive brain damage. It was a terrible, terrible thing. And, and her mother uh, and, and other family members just went through hell because of this, but, you know, she, but it's, just, it was, it, it was astonishing. It's an astonishing demonstration that just how much of a disconnect there can be between death as we define it with brain death and death as we might define it based on physiology. And, um, you know, they're not, they're, they're just not the same. And so eventually she did die um, in New Jersey and um, the state of New Jersey issued her a second death certificate. So this is someone who has legally died twice. It's really, really extraordinary story, isn't it? I, just, I couldn't believe that reading that. And it's such an, it's an amazing point because, again, I think it's something that us non-scientist people don't ever give much thought to. It's the, the, so she, the body was still alive and, and changing into a different person because she went through uh, puberty and stuff. You'd become right. a totally different person. Right. And the thing is, and something to bear in mind is like, is that puberty is actually the process of, of going into puberty and that development is actually governed, regulated by the brain. Yeah. Um, so she was brain dead, but there was a portion of her brain, like maybe one little gland at least that was uh, in, you know, good, good enough shape to, to be releasing hormones and to be sort of governing this very complicated process um it's just that you know uh, large parts of the rest of her brain 
were just so badly damaged that she was not going to regain consciousness. Tell me about Cotard or Cotard uh, syndrome uh, people. Right. So Cotard syndrome, this, this kind of ties into um, what we've been talking about, about, you know, our intuitions of what it means to be alive. Um, you know, we think that it's obvious, you know, we think that, you know, I mean, we feel that we're, each of us feels like we're alive, that we are alive. We know we're alive, you know, we know it in our bones, you know, um, we might not be able to give you a very good explanation for how it is that we know we're alive, but we know it. Um, and so I think that kind of leads us to assume that, well, scientists must have a very obvious, simple definition, understanding of life, um, because it feels so self-evident to each of us. But either, either there are people who actually are just as firmly uh, convinced sure that they are dead, not alive. And um, the the first uh, doctor to recognize this condition was a French uh, doctor named Cotard in the 1800s. And, you know, he just talked about, you know, a, a patient who, you know, very articulately explained to Cotard um, that he was dead and how he had died and how it was that, you know, he, he managed to be walking around still. And there are a few, this is a very rare condition, but, you know, from time to time, psychiatrists or neurologists encounter somebody who, who displays the same behavior. You know, the, there was a, one account of a woman who um, just stopped bathing. And the reason was that, you know, because she had died. And so that now she was nothing but a husk. And as soon as she took a bath, she would just dissolve away because there was nothing inside. Um, and so, you know, like it's, it, it's uh, these kinds of conditions, you know, the, sometimes, sometimes, you know, you can zero in on certain parts of the brain that might be damaged <laughs> that lead people to have these unusual behaviors or beliefs. Um, Unfortunately, Cotard is so, syndrome is so rare that it's really hard to like, you know, you can't go out and find hundreds of people to brain scan. But what little research there is, is very suggestive that maybe, you know, there are parts of our brain that are specialized in monitoring the state of our bodies and sort of reporting back to our, our brains, like how we're doing, how we're, what's our internal state like. And um, it may be that, you know, damage to uh, these, these regions may just cut off that supply of information that you get about your own body so that suddenly you feel like you don't have that feeling of being alive and you know our brains are incredibly you know um elastic things you know and so like these people would just come up with these elaborate explanations well I'm a, i don't feel this way because i'm dead well how did i die well i must have died like this you know and, yeah. and going on from there um wow. the fact that you can uh, be explaining to your doctor that you're dead is doesn't <laughs> doesn't seem to trip trip up people with Cotard syndrome. Wow, I, we do a lot of episodes on things like cognitive biases, and I suppose one of them is the the concept that you um, you have a feeling first, and then you'll rationalize it. Like the feeling comes first. So I suppose they have such a strong feeling of being dead that even that they're able to rationalize. Yep. Um, 
and if you know so that that's the thing with feelings and the way they sway us and stuff and which leads me on i think to ben shapiro because you wrote a little about about him and it, it hadn't occurred to me again nothing occurs to me by the way ever but it hadn't occurred to me when writing a book about life's edge whether or not you're political you can't uh, avoid abortion of course the abortion topic where do you stand on abortion well i mean i i think in in life's edge you know it's it life's edge is not some sort of political polemic um but I do think that it is important to look at the way that political figures talk about life and and question the terms of how they're talking about it. Um, so it it so Ben Shapiro, like many other uh, people ha- have said, life begins at conception, science proves it. It's just science. Um, you know, and I, I quote him saying something to that effect um, in the book. And that's just a sample. I could have quoted thousands of other people. Like this is something you hear again and again and again. And yet, you know, the fact is that um, it's very hard to actually like find, you know, something clearly articulated where someone who is, who, who believes that life begins at conception actually tells you what they mean by life. Because if we're talking about um, some of these hallmarks we discussed before, you know, um, metabolism, um, homeostasis, that's, that's one I love. Like homeostasis is, is the way that, you know, you and I, like the insides of our bodies are very stable, uh, even if we're in a very unstable environment, you know, our blood pressure doesn't radically change. Our, our body temperature is stable. Uh, even when we sort of get pushed out of equilibrium, we have ways of pulling back. You know, we get, we get sick, we heal. Like there, we, we have ways, we have ways of, of getting back to this, this equilibrium that we need to, to keep surviving. Well, an unfertilized egg has those features. Um, a sperm cell does as well. Um, so the cells that give rise to a fertilized egg themselves are alive by that definition, if that's a definition you choose. So, you know, if you kind of, if you, if you, you kind of get some intimations that uh, some people who claim that life begins at conception are saying, well, no, 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 no. Well, what we're talking about is that, you know, is, is that there's a, you know, a genome, a unique genome that arises. And it's like, well, actually like, you know, when, when a sperm enters an egg, um, the, the sperm has its own, you know, paternal genome, the egg has its own maternal genome. And they, for a couple of days, they're running pretty independently. They don't really have much to do with each other. They're two separate Mm -hmm. genomes. So is that two separate people or what, what, what is that then? (laughs) <laughs> Eventually, those those two sets of DNA are uh, you know integrate and start to to work as as a unit. Okay, so is but that's two days after conception. All right, so so what was happening then? Like, and and if you're going to be an absolutist and say life begins at conception, you don't you don't give yourself any wiggle room. So I don't see how people can be like, oh well, it's sort of kind of alive. That do, that doesn't work if you're going to be so emphatic about these things, and then. I mean, it just goes on, you know, um, uh, uh, like, uh, you, you know, the, we, we have, I mean, the, 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 you have the whole issue of, you know, that what happens, um, you know, what happens if that fertilized egg eventually like splits into two identical twins, um, are, are, are those two people? 
no. Um, <laughs> according to this logic, I mean, if if that if again, if the DNA is the defining feature of a person, then now you have two bodies of one person. You get you just end up in in all of these uh, absurdities if you try to pin things down in that sort of uh, absolute way. Um, you know the the number of of uh, embryos that are that you know after fertilization that are lost um, through a process known as spontaneous abortion and and other processes it's huge. Probably the majority of of uh, you know fertilized eggs will uh, not. Uh, not even get close to viability. So are we, I mean, you know, if we're treating each one of these as, as a fully fledged uh, living thing, a human being, um, how is it that people are not sort of like um, dealing with looking at this as like a spectacular medical emergency? Um, They don't because like the, because the fact is that we just, that's just not really how, that's not really how we think about human life. It just really isn't when you get down to it. And um, so I, so, so while, you know, I, while I'm not, you know, I don't have a political platform uh, per se to be pushing in this book, I do think that the language that is, is, has been used actually, you know, for decades now in these abortion debates, when people claim, quote unquote, life begins at conception, I, I find that to be um, practically meaningless. Do you think it's maybe another example, and uh, I'm getting into the psychology of someone like Ben Shapiro, just only because I don't, I don't mean to pick on him, because I know a lot of listeners will probably like him. And, and, and I like him, you know, for, I don't know. Uh, but his motto is, facts don't have feelings. And he is religious, he's, he's very religious. Um, and and I, I wonder, is that an example again of him sort of having the feeling maybe tied up in his religion and then rationalizing in in that way uh you know i i would not speak for for ben shapiro or try to get inside of his mind you know i i just i i don't you know that i don't want to feel that that's my place but certainly you know i i think certainly we can engage with um the statements that people make and um and and it's again it's not you know it's not, uh, it, uh, it's, there are lots of other people, you know, who, who share these, these views as well. And um, it's it just, um, uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, former vice president, Mike Pence would use this sort of line all the time in, in his role as a, a, you know, as a political candidate and vice president, and vice president, like that's just something that you hear all the time. And um, so, you know, I think it's, I, uh, you know, and, and honest, you know, what the irony is that, um, you know, scientists were saying, and this is not um, a new issue. Um, I, I'm not, I'm not breaking open a closed door here. Um, the fact is that, um, you know, the, these, these abortion debates in the United States were flaring up in the 1960s. Um, and, um you know, in the sort of in the run-up to our Roe versus Wade decision in, in the early 1970s. And, um, you know, a scientist, Joshua Lederberg, you know, Nobel Prize-winning microbiologist, you know, one of the leading biologists of, of the time, was writing in, in the 1960s, just saying, like, stop this. Like, don't, don't try to invoke science for what are fundamentally, like, you know, human judgments um, about, 
about you know these sort of social and political decisions um you know like he and he he made a he I, I quote him in the book he makes this beautiful argument about how like you know he thinks about life as more kind of like just a almost like a river that like has flowed continuously for 4 billion years from generation to generation, from cell to cell, that there's a continuity there. And to say, well, you know, quote, life begins at conception uh, just doesn't make any sense in, in that view of life. And, and so he just said, like, leave, you know, don't, don't expect a scientist to solve this problem for you. I suppose it's, yeah, it's just very hard for humans to grasp that river analogy, isn't it? We like to think of like, that's a life, I'm a life. And that's it. It's so hard to go outside of that. And I suppose it gets even more complicated if you think, you know, are you and I the same people as we were when we started this conversation with, you know, so it's just a minefield. And I understand what you're saying and that you won't be drawn on Ben Shapiro. I'll try to stop having a big uh, Carl Zimmer, Ben Shapiro fight. But uh, tell me about tardigrades and water. Mm, tardigrades. Yes. Yeah. So these are some of my, uh, you know, favorite critters, um, especially in the context of, you know, Life's Edge, because they can really, they can go, they can seem like totally normal, uh, cool animals and then go off to life's edge and just be there in a place where we don't know what they are. So tardigrades are, um, sometimes they're called um, like water bears uh, or moss piglets. Um, and that's because um, they, you know, some, some species actually live on moss. They live all over the place in soil and in water, but they look kind of like piglets or bears, they have eight legs and uh, they are just stubby and they actually walk along on their little legs, but you know, they're, they're almost too small to see with the naked eye. And um, so they go about their business, uh, you know, now, now sometimes, you know, tardigrades will face really harsh changes to their environment. So for example, uh, you know, their little patch of moss might dry out now. Um, <clears throat> and so they start to dry out. Um, so if we dehydrate, you know, if you start losing like, you know, five, 10% of, of the water in your body, you start to feel terrible. And, you know, if you lose 20 or 30%, you're dead. Um, because, you know, you're, you're, you're the chemistry that sustains your cells just doesn't work without water. You know, water is this essential component of these, these, uh, chemical reactions. These reactions will not play out unless they're in the presence of water. It's just, that's it. And so your cells just start falling apart and dying off. And like, you know, if I splash water on you after you've died of dehydration, you're not going to spring back to life. The damage is done. Not true for tardigrades. So with tardigrades, what happens is that they actually sort of, they start, they, they respond to the drought by uh, by drying out, by producing sort of a substitute for water, a kind of sugar called triolose that actually <clears throat> behaves a lot like water for a while. So they can kind of buy themselves some time. And in that time, they start to make a very unusual protein that can wrap around their DNA and uh, essential proteins and so on. And, and then basically hardens into kind of a glass. Uh, and so they, they essentially turn themselves into glass, a protein glass, as it were. And um, there's no chemistry that happens inside of them. Like, so like, if that's, if that's your big hallmark of life, these things aren't alive anymore, but they're not dead. Um, you can put splash water on them and, you know, they will, they will take apart the protein glass, they will restart their, uh, restart their engines. And it doesn't take very long, you know, for them to be back, back in action. 
And um, the amazing thing is like, you know, you can wait and wait and wait. You know, scientists keep waiting longer and longer and longer before, you know, reviving these tardigrades. And, you know, they, they waited for decades and they can bring them back completely fine. Um, it's, there's some, you know, it's possible maybe you could wait more than a century. I mean, no one's waited that long. But um, so they're in a, they're in what scientists actually describe as a third state uh, between life and death, uh, sometimes called cryptobiosis. Uh, and there are lots of other species that turn out to be capable of cryptobiosis too. And, you know, it's not, it's really hard to sort of basically bring yourself to a halt in a way that you can come back to life later. Um, but they have evolved this amazing uh, way of doing that. I, I don't think that we're, you know, I don't think anyone will ever be able to adapt that for like, you know, preserving humans for centuries. Mm. But, you know, but who knows? Who knows? That's a shame. <laughs> well, it's, you know, it, it's, it's, it's not like, you know, tardigrades just pop a pill, you know, like it's an exquisitely complicated biochemical process to make these proteins and to, you know, basically like, think about it, like, you know, they, they've got, you know, these millions of, of proteins, DNA molecules, and so on in their cells, they have to encase all of that uh, in, in this format that will let it withstand um, desiccation. It's amazing. Man, could I see them? I've no, I don't think I've, because they're sort of not that tiny, are they? Would If I've looked really close at like my table, would I be able to look at a little one? Um, th- it would you know, it, it, we're talking like smaller than a grain of sand. I mean, you'd really, you'd be like, well, I think I see it, you know, if, but if you just slide it under a pretty, you know, a, a pretty ordinary microscope, boom, it's right there. Huh. Is it reasonable? I think last question for, um, but is it reasonable to imagine that alien life would, uh, because we talk about water and things like that, that would resemble us in some way. We always hear people saying like, oh, why do you assume it's some similar way to, but that they would, you know, probably need water and things like that. Well, I mean, I think there are a lot of interesting arguments that people have made, but I think in the, you know, in, in the absence of actual aliens, <laughs> it's really hard to, to <laughs> really judge which one's more plausible. I don't know. I mean, um, you know, some people have said like, well, um, look at life on earth, you know, life has converged again and again on, on certain kinds of forms, you know, the most famous kinds of convergence are like what Darwin would see, like flight, for example, bats with their leathery wings, feather birds with their feathers. Um, you know, so the argument is like, well, there are only a limited number of ways of making a living. And so we could expect that aliens would um, converge uh, on on us, you know, using water as a solvent and and all and all sorts of other things. I mean, you know, I that's interesting. Except that, you know, who's to say that water that water is essential? Um, you know, maybe there are other solvents. You know, maybe you know liquid gas could be uh the solvent you know we could be going to some moon of jupiter and finding a radically different form of life there just in our own solar system um we just have to go and look uh so <clears throat> you know does does it life have to be based on dna no probably not because scientists have actually been building like alternate genetic molecules that are they, they have a backbone like dna but they're not 
DNA itself. So, um, I, you know, I think there are lots of opportunities for weird life, which is one reason why we shouldn't get too stuck on a definition of life. Maybe we shouldn't be trying to define life uh, when there's still so much work left to, to, to get, gain a deep understanding of it, to, to find other kinds of life beyond the kind of uniform life on our own planet, you know, maybe make it life from scratch, you know, or maybe develop a theory of life, you know, the, in the way that there's like a theory of superconductivity, like that would be, that would be good. It's, it's, it would be the most remarkable discovery of all time to even find like tiny little cells or whatever molecular life uh, on any planet. And, and, and then to see something complex would be amazing. But I couldn't help but feel slightly disappointed if it was just like pigeons and like, like things that we know. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's, oh, there's a rat and a pigeon. And like, oh, that was it. Well, you know, I, I, I mean, I, you know, <laughs> if you look on Earth, I mean, I just called life bo- on Earth boring. And, and that's unfair. I mean, like, it's boring <laughs> in the sense that like all life as we know it, um, leaving viruses out of it. All life aside from viruses are, you know, are based on cells, cells that contain DNA, DNA that encodes protein and RNA. That's it. It's all the same. But, you know, you take that basic uh, set of ingredients and you produce all sorts of things, you know, and, you know, beyond pigeons, all sorts of other cool stuff. <laughs> um, so, you know, the diversity of life, even with that same template here on earth has led to strange things like those parasitic wasps that I was talking about, or, you know, two worms at the bottom of the ocean that are in a symbiosis with, you know, uh, bacteria that, that feed on chemicals and, you know, all sorts of amazing things. And so, um, so, you know, just, so I think if we, if we do find life, uh, say on Mars or, or on Enceladus, uh, you know, one of these moons around Saturn, um, you know, I think it will be, I think, first of all, I think it'll be a microbe. So, um, you know, if you, if you really only care about, you know, living things that you can see with the naked eye, you might be a little disappointed, but if you take a little time to get to know microbes on earth, which are amazing and do astonishing things, um, I'm sure that the microbes on Mars or Enceladus will be just completely mind blowing. They will have some bizarre chemistry or, you know, ways of making a living that um, we can't even imagine yet Um, because microbes on earth keep surprising us. You know, we're finding that there are microbes, you know, like deep, deep, deep in, 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 in the, earth's crust you know just just places no one ever thought they could survive they seem to survive on on radioactivity you know like they're just there's amazing microbes on this planet i I don't think there are palm trees uh, you know on on venus but i do think there might be microbes elsewhere in the solar system and cool ones Hope you enjoyed that episode with Professor Carl Zimmer, learning about what alien life could look like, what parasites do in cockroaches, when life begins with regards to abortion, and also just life in general around the planet. I feel we've learned so much just listening to Carl. I'm gonna, I'm gonna call him Carl, Professor Zimmer. I'm gonna go with Carl, and yet we're also in some sense without any answers because the theory of life is only for now a theory and we're waiting for those clever scientists to understand a little more 
And perhaps there simply is no exact line between life and non-life. In any case, it was amazing getting the chance to speak to Professor Carl Zimmer. Find him on Twitter on at Carl Zimmer. Go to carlzimmer.com for his many books and lots of things about him. See what he's up to. And find a link to Life's Edge, his latest book, which I've read and thought was phenomenal, in the show notes or, or anywhere you want, really. Just, it's, you know, it's in Amazon and all those places. There was no bonus episode this week. Sorry about that. All you lovely patrons and subscribers, normal service should return next week. I might soon boost the podcast to two episodes a week, so then you'll always get at least one bonus episode. Thanks so much to my new subscribers. I can't see your names on Apple, but on Patreon, there was the lovely Brett Ran in Australia and Ian Forbes in what might be Sweden, but he could be anywhere. I don't really know, actually. Really nice guys I've been chatting to on Patreon. Big fans of the podcast. Other big fans can express their delight by following me and interacting with me on Twitter or Instagram. On I'm I'm on at Andrew Gold underscore OK or through the reviews on Apple or Castbox. I read every one and even read them out here, unless you ask me not to in the review, of course. Uh, Susanna in the Hills in the US gave five stars and wrote one of my favourites. I always look forward to the next episode. Interesting and intelligent conversations and a rare of guests, humour and kindness, plus Daniel has a wonderful radio voice. Now, I don't know who Daniel is. She must have thought, she must have meant Andrew. Must must have meant that. And I'm trying to think of a guest called Daniel, but why would she have said that? I think it's going to be me. Um, and maybe that's a bit presumptuous on my part. Who knows? Who knows? But thank you, Susanna in the Hills, very much for the review. Uh, and then Lornoid in the UK also gave five stars and wrote fascinating. Stumbling across this was like finding a £50 note in an old coat pocket. Andrew sources fascinating guests, but more than that, it's his interview style which makes it so fab. Andrew comes across as so authentic, if only you knew. Loving it. Thank you, Andrew. Ah, I love that thought of finding money in an old coat pocket, although you'd have to go to the bank and change it for one of those new notes if it were like a 10 or 20. I don't know if they changed the £50 note, um, there's something about that note because I so rarely see it and in the very few occasions I've had one of those in my hands, that's $66 at the time of speaking for non-Brits, I've always felt the weight and responsibility of having a big red, it's got a bit of red on it, doesn't it, 50 pound note. Anyway, thanks Lornoid and Susanna in the Hills, I loved reading your reviews. Next week on the podcast is I think Jordan Harbinger then I believe it's David Robson and then John Ronson. I just need to double check the order when all these people want their episodes to go out to publicize the things that they are promoting. But in any case, have a wonderful Christmas, everyone. And you'll hear from me again before the new year. Please do, if you've not yet done so, please please get in touch. Tell me you're listening. I get new messages every week from people saying they've wanted to say hi for months and months and they put it off. And I'm so happy when they do, especially if it means I get a new follower on Twitter or Instagram, of course. And that's Andrew Gold underscore OK on both of those. Keep safe. Keep warm. Be with loved ones. Don't worry if you don't have any. Just watch TV and cozy up in bed for a nice Christmas. Take a few days off. Have some chocolate and wine. And I'll always be here like Big Brother watching every move you make. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. 
ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.